As a kid, I can remember ripping music off Napster and LimeWire, downloading it to my desktop, and then burning it onto CDs. Since Sean Parker disrupted the music industry with Napster, the distribution of music has evolved greatly and landed us in a world of subscription services, which give listeners unlimited access to millions of songs whenever they want to hear them. There's Apple Music, Amazon Music, Tidal, YouTube Music, the biggest player Spotify, and many more. But how are these platforms taking care of their creators financially? What type of negotiating power does an artist have with a major platform like Spotify? My guest today, Brandon Torrey, is looking to completely overhaul the way creators are valued for their shared content with his company, Formless. Brandon's worked for Apple and Google and has spent as many years as a hip hop artist as he has coding. So Formless really is the perfect blend of his two life focuses, which are tech and music. And it's fitting because I believe at the backbone of both good music and well-designed tech is the aim to bring people together. On this episode, Brandon shares with us how he got into hip hop, Silicon Valley, and most importantly, how his company Formless will leverage blockchain to shift the way creators are forever compensated for their art. I'm Jarrett Carpenter, and this is More Than Blockchain. Brandon Tori, welcome to More Than Blockchain. How you doing? I'm doing well, happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Happy to be in studio. This is my moving studio. I feel like Kanye, I just pulled up with a backpack and now you're gonna get the samples. That's good energy, I love that Kanye energy. <laughs> it's that Kanye backpack energy. Let's do it. So today we're here to talk about Formless, which I would like to think is kind of like your baby it in is. many ways and you gotta yeah. take care of it and see it grow right. But before we get into Formless, tell me a little bit about you and how we get you here to Formless. Now, if you go on Brandon's Twitter and we'll shout that out at the end, you have the whole, it's super great. It's a thread. Hey, this is why I left my job in Silicon Valley. This is why I left tech. This is what I want to do now and why. But maybe you can kind of give people a condensed version or not yeah. of that thread because I thought it was really well done. And I loved how each tweet had its own big idea. This is an idea, music, formless. Yeah. So how do you get here from... Growing up, and we just talked about where you're from. So growing up in Brockton, I was I grew up in Beverly, both kids from Massachusetts. Growing up from Brockton, how do you get here now? Because it's been quite a journey. So I'll start from the beginning, and then if something pops up that's interesting, let me know. We could, we could dive into more detail. Um, as you said, I grew up in Brockton. When I was 14, I wanted to be a hacker more than anything. So um, as I've said before, like I spent thousands of hours as a kid coding. C++, Python, assembly, trying to like reverse engineer games, whatever I could do to learn. And I joined these chat rooms back then that, that were called IRC, stands for Internet Relay Chat. It was a lot like Discord, but more like 90s style. And I spent like all my time there as a teenager. And so just learning and being very competitive in that space, I got really good at coding at a young age. But at the same time, like being in Brockton, having really young parents, 18 when they had me, we had a lot of financial troubles. So I lived in motels. I lived in a homeless shelter at one point. I lived in family members' houses. And um, with all that instability, tech and coding was like my, my go-to. That's how I zoned out and kind of like, you know, weighted that, that kind of instability. So I got into hip hop because like, you know, living in those neighborhoods, that's what everybody was into. And so I kind of had this dichotomy where, you know, my authentic self was more kind of like, you know, just a kid from the streets. And then the tech side of myself was the kid who like didn't want to talk about, hey, at night I'm doing C++ and Python and all these things. And um, I ended up getting my degree in electrical engineering. and quit to become a rapper. So I moved to Atlanta in so 2011. Wait, yep. now, now we got it. <laughs> Chapter one is done. Yep, yep. He leaves Rockton. He's doing two different things. He has two different hats on, and maybe people don't know about them in the different sectors, exactly. one being hip-hop and one being coding. And then you get into... Wait, slow down. Yep, I get into an engineering job. Get into an engineering job. Yep. You're doing that, and then you say, no, I need to go to ATL to see what music could be. Exactly. I mean, so I was working in North Reading for like a military contractor company doing um, device drivers. So this is like really low level, like working with firmware and Verilog and C++. And uh, a lot of MIT guys work there, like older guys who went to MIT. And so I learned a lot from them when I was at the company. But I started looking at, you know, just around the office and I'm like, is this where I really want to be? And I think for me, you know, I didn't have any kids at the time. I was still young. And as much as I respected these guys and I learned so much from them, I just wanted to see, like, was there potentially more? And so I had this friend of mine, Yvonne. We were in the studio every day in Cambridge. 
just making music. And one day I was like, yo, let's move to Atlanta. Like, let's just try it. You know what I mean? And so I dropped everything. My fiance at the time, who's now my wife, you know, we packed up everything in a $1,200 van and just drove to Atlanta. Can I get a, wow, okay. <laughs> Can I get a timeline of when that was? Yeah. Year-wise? That was 2011. That was 2011. Okay, so 2011. About, um, uh, a little over 10 years ago. Yeah, a little over 10, a little, which is crazy because I'm sure it feels like yesterday sometimes. Exactly. A little over a decade ago, you put stuff in a van and you said, we're going to drive to Atlanta. And why Atlanta? Why yeah. was that? What was the reason around that? Was the South somewhere you wanted to create uh, over, for example, New York and LA if we're just focused on hip hop? Yeah. So I think, um, I think in that time period, it wasn't like the hip hop scene wasn't as digital and like national as it is now. Like right now, there's a lot of dope pockets in terms of like where people are making great music. But in 2011, it was like you had to be in like Atlanta or LA. And I had friends, I mean, New York too, but like really there was, there was just something special happening in Atlanta. And I had friends that were already in Atlanta. And so I was like, you know, I made some phone calls and was like, yo, can you check out an apartment for me? I didn't even see the apartment before I moved in. I just had my man sign the lease on my behalf and then I drove down and moved to Atlanta. I went to college in Memphis, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. I had to get out of here. I, I love New England. I always will always be a New England kid at heart in, in many ways. But coming out of college, I'm like, all right, I want, I want to go to the South. I, uh, well, actually, I wanted to go to the West Coast, but my parents said it was too far away, so I ended up going to Memphis. The joke about Memphis was I had to always go through Atlanta and back up because there's like not a lot of flights directly from Boston to Memphis yep. at the time. And so going down to the South, especially Memphis, it is hip-hop central. I went down there and got there at the time that 3-6 Mafia was actually kind of went mainstream with Stay High. Mm-hmm. I think it's Stay High, something high, Get High, Stay, stay High, I believe. And then so in around the time when I graduated from college, undergrad, which would have been 2009, T.I. had taken over. Yep. And that was obviously ATL. And obviously ATL has its, its past with OutKast. And I believe, and God, I hope I don't mess this up, the guys from, and now I'm blanking on their name, are also from Atlanta. My buddy says they're like the new OutKast, and that's why he doesn't like them. Well, why can't I think of their name? I'm Help me sure. out. It's uh, two guys. I'm going to have to open up Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> look it up. I'm going to have to open up Twitter to figure it out. So, okay, Atlanta is definitely a hip-hop center. You say, all right, we got to go down there. So I get to Atlanta and, um, you know, I'm learning the music industry. I'm meeting a lot of great people. I'm still coding at the same time, right? So like part-time doing iOS development, doing C++, whatever I can do to get money at the same time. And um, was there for about three years and then decided to move to LA. So I moved to LA in 2014. I thought there was like some opportunity to get into songwriting and like kind of evolve my sound. I get to LA and within the first six months, Timbaland discovers me. So I win this big songwriting competition with this guitar song I had called Comfortable. He flies me to Miami. I, I meet Timbaland. I fly back. He's got, I got his number now. He's calling me all the time. So I get my first break in music. And, um, you know, I always joke, like, I didn't tell Timbaland anything about the tech side of myself. I always kept those two things very separate. And so I'm in L.A. now. I kind of got this cosign. I'm throwing these big parties. And, you know, I got a studio on, on uh, Lancashire Boulevard, North Hollywood. But I got no money. Right. I don't have a hit record. And in music, just because you have like, you know, some momentum doesn't mean you're making money. And I had to figure out a way to kind of combine both sides of myself, you know, the tech side, the music side. And that was when I decided to join Apple as a senior engineer in 2016. So you join Apple because you want to merge the tech and the hip hop. Yeah. These two hats have normally been put on at different times, never one at the same time. Yeah. What, why did why why Apple? How was Apple to, to going to do that? You, yeah, to be honest with you, I didn't. It wasn't as intentional as it may sound. It wasn't like I joined Apple because I wanted to merge tech, tech and hip hop. It was because I wanted to get money to finance what I was doing in hip hop. And so I saw what the opportunities looked like in Silicon Valley, and I decided, you know what, I'm going to go up to the Bay Area. I'm going to you know get back into big tech, and then I'll come back to LA and live both lives at the same time. And so what I was doing was. I was at Apple during the week, and then at night I would drive back to L.A. and go to the studio and do shows and do everything else, and I called it multi-dream, and I would do both. I saw that. Yeah, so yeah. once again, back to your tweet, the multi-dream exactly. was trying to burn the candle at both ends. Exactly. And skipping ahead, do we get to formless from your, like, I can't burn the candle at both ends. I have to have one big candle and burn that as hard as I can. So, yeah, so this is where it gets interesting. So now I'm living both lives, but I'm not really being honest with, uh, with people, right? So I have... My friend group in L.A. who I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to be in, in the Bay Area for a couple months. I'll be back. Don't worry about it. And then I have my friends in tech who like, have no idea that I'm putting out music videos and stuff at the same time. They have, wait, wait. They have no idea. No idea. I would never tell people that I was in both And why ways. not? Um, I wanted to maintain credibility on both sides. You know, as, as an engineer at Apple, you know, just to me, 
And I think it's more it's more um, understandable now. But at the time, for me, there was no way that people in my engineering circle could understand that world. Similarly, in the music world, there was no way that people could understand how I'm in the studio, you know, making this emotional, you know, uh, connective music. But then, like, going and working in tech, an office job at that, right? Like, so for me, it just didn't it didn't compute. I didn't see a way to make those two things make sense. This is such an interesting thing you're saying because I think we as human beings are so multidimensional. Yeah. And I recently, in the last three or four months, I've been looking at different jobs and I've been looking at tech because now I can stay on the East Coast or stay between here in Colombia or here in Latin America. I can work from wherever and still support a bigger vision like a Twitter or Facebook. And so I had a conversation with a headhunter and she said something that really stuck with me. She's like, well... We really like specificity. We need someone who can do that one thing. Mm -hmm. And I've always found myself to kind of be a jack of all trades in some sense. And I don't think that that's a bad thing. I actually think it's a strength. But I think only now, and now we're going to slide right in perfectly into Formless and Web3. I think Web3 allows you to be focused on three different things or four different things or, you know, a multi, a, a variant of things at one point and be super successful. Whereas before, I kind of get what you're saying. If the coding... You know, if Apple finds out, wow, Brandon goes off at night, is in the cipher, mm-hmm. and he's down in some basement, or he's, you know, he's recording trap music or something, yep, yep. that may not be accepted. And on the other side, you may lose credentials in the basement recording music, or in the cipher, or wherever that may be, because yep. they're like, oh, this dude's just a nerd. Absolutely. Is that accurate? I'm no, not, I, I'm not no, trying to step on. No, no, no. You hit it on the head. That's what it is. I mean, in, in the neighborhoods I grew up in, like talking about being in tech was just a nerdy thing to, to do, right? It didn't make sense. And so I think for me, a lot of the insecurity came from that. You know, like my peer group didn't really get that world. But to your point about like specificity and focusing on one thing, the key that I've realized is what are you focusing on? And that's, that is where formless comes in. Because when you zoom out and you recognize that, yeah, it is tough to focus on like uh, coding and creating music at the same time. But if you zoom out and really look at what is the mission that you're trying to drive forward by doing these two things, and it does intersect with Web3, if you do that, then you are focusing on one thing. It's just a bigger thing. And for me, that was really the realization. So with this multi-dream thing, when I wasn't telling anybody, my sister actually checked me on it. She came to one of my parties in LA. She goes, you know, this is beautiful, but like, you're not, you're still not being yourself. Like, why don't you tell people like who you really are? I was like, that's crazy. Nobody will get it. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Right. And uh, she challenged me on that. And, and so what I did was I put together this, this message where I talked about multi-dream and like how you can be yourself in multiple spaces at the same time. And I sent it to every executive at Apple. And nobody responded. Not except, one response. Except Jimmy Iovine. Jimmy Iovine responded. Okay. He said, very impressive. I said, can we meet? He said, yeah. So I meet with Jimmy Iovine, and he, like, grills me, and we sit and talk for, like, an hour, and he just asked me, like, what is it you want to do? Who do you want to meet? What are your goals? And I walked out of that meeting, like, really, really inspired. And that was kind of the inception of Formless. You know, my mother talked to me about that and said, you know, what you need to do is establish a vision and a company that's bigger than yourself. And that's what will tie all these things together. And it wasn't until I started being honest about my true identity that I got all these press breaks. So, like, I had been in music for years trying to get in the press, right? Really hard. Got, like, a couple magazine looks, but nothing serious. I think the day after I came out and was honest, I was in Forbes, Wall Street Journal, Yahoo Finance, CNN, CNBC. And what, when was this? This was uh, 2018. 2018, that's what I thought. Right per before the I timeline in my head of how it built. Okay, exactly. so that's 2018. You finally get press. Doing the thing that maybe for seemingly seven to eight years, you have been trying not to, to do. hide. Yeah, you've been trying to keep this on the very low exactly. to not draw any attention. But then when you kind of shine a little light, you get sunlight yeah. on a massive level. Maybe you probably didn't expect. Yeah, just through honesty. I didn't think the story was that interesting. And then you know, I started <laughs> telling it and people were like, yeah, this is, really, this is really cool. So kind of fast forward into Formless. You know, I had always been thinking while I was at, at Apple about like, what is the future of music and technology? And how do they kind of coalesce? I got into blockchain like 2017. I was actually building algorithmic trading bots on GDAX. So like with the Coinbase API, how do you build speed trading bots that can run in data centers and stuff like that? That was my introduction to crypto. And so to me, blockchain was really cool from that perspective, but I didn't see how it could really help creators at the time. I had put together this idea about like, if we treated music more like a program, then that would actually solve it. Because the way we distribute music now is very static. We create this WAV file, this MP3 file, and we trust the vendor to then interpret that file. And by doing that, you typically are putting all the power in the vendor's hands. And so this has happened throughout the history of music, whether it's the vinyl player, the CD player, the Walkman, Spotify, YouTube. 
And so the idea is if we stop thinking of a song as a file and think of a song as a standalone machine, then what happens is as the creator becomes the machine vendor themselves, um, they can control the entire distribution process. Now, as I was writing this out and doing all the research, it never clicked to me that like blockchain was connected to this. It was like, well, we can just make a song a program and run it on like a server, you know, in a special way. And so I kind of had this idea. And then I joined Google and, to get back to LA. So I joined Google and was on the natural language AI team for the past three years, which was like a fantastic experience. I worked with some of the best engineers I've ever met in my life. Funny enough, we're in Cambridge now. It's a bunch of MIT guys that I work with and, you know, just all working on NLP. And so in parallel, I'm now doing three things. I'm an artist, working on my album, building Formless as kind of like a side project startup. And I'm now really actually motivated to do well at Google because I've got these peers who are like rock star engineers. And so multi-dream continued. Yeah, you actually added a layer to the dream. I added a layer to the dream, exactly. And then at some point, very recently, in more recent history, you say, I've got to put down... I've got to focus on formless, yeah. the third part, which will actually suck in the other two parts being hip hop and coding. Exactly. So, or music and coding, I guess I should say, because it's bigger than just hip hop. Yeah, I think it's, um, it's like identity and coding, right? It's like being who you are and finding ways for technology to empower that through content, through storytelling, through like our identities. So what happened was Google was like just a really amazing experience, I would say. And as I progressed, you know, I started to really care about my career there. I wanted to progress. I became a staff engineer. I started leading a team of like multiple engineers and they were putting their faith in me to lead their careers and things like that. So it wasn't something that I could just slack on. And so I worked really, really hard at Google and at the same time was starting to build formless, but I did it really slow. And so I focused on just the foundation. How to, like, who, who are the people that are going to help me build this? What are the operational things that we need to do to be prepared for that moment? And in parallel, I kept doing this research about like, you know, music being technology, music being software. I think the key breakthrough was probably a year and a half ago when I really decided, all right, let me actually dive in to blockchain and actually understand what's really going on in the technology. And once I started to really get a grasp on the EVM, which is the Ethereum virtual machine, it clicked to me that that was the solution to making music technology. And so the research started to ramp up and become more serious. And then at the end of last year, I went to Mainnet NYC. I started talking to investors about the idea, and they're like, well, if this is such a good idea, why haven't you left Google yet? And I was like, you know what? You're right. <laughs> was that the first time that you had thought about it, when someone kind of put you, put no, you on knew, and said, hey, man, why? You know? I, always, I always knew that, um, that there was going to be a time that I wanted to progress, you know, do my own thing. But the timing of that, I wasn't sure about, right? And especially, like, you know, a kid who came from nothing and now being able to uh, provide through Google, it was a big decision for me. But at the same time, the stuff we were building in the formless, it just it started to feel undeniable. And so I came out of that conference and was like, you know what? I do have to bet on myself. I do have to believe in myself. And that's what that, that tweet thread that you're talking about was about. Wow. Okay. When you were talking there, so many things are sparking for me. One of the things is the name came to me of the group, Earth Gang. It's mm. also out of Atlanta. And I think that they're phenomenal. I yep. think they're part of the Dreamville. And that's just like, you know, there's so many parallels right now in hip hop and Web3, NFTs, blockchain. So this seems very natural. Snoop Dogg is one of the biggest owners, I think, of land in the metaverse. Yeah, right. Nas is one of the earlier investors in Coinbase, as far as I know, and I know he made a lot of money on that. Yep. And so to quote J. Cole, you know, if I'm betting on myself, I completely double down. You've doubled down on yourself. Now we're here. You're back on the other side of the continent. You're yep. back on, in Boston. <laughs> yep. Tell me about where Formless is now and where it's going. And I read the white paper before we sat down oh, multiple times. Thank you. And I think it's very incredible what you're trying to do. And if I could, I'd just like to read something from the white paper. And then I'd ask, like to ask you to talk about Share. Perfect. It says, Share is a protocol that enables creators to make orders of magnitude more money for their digital content by eliminating the dependence on centralized content streaming machines, i.e., Apple, Spotify, YouTube, all together. Yeah. Break that down. <laughs> what does that mean? So for you as an artist, why would you as an artist, as Brandon the artist, be really into Formless when it's ready to fly? Yeah. Like you come across and you're like, oh, okay, I get this now. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so let me start with the white paper quote and then I'll dive into the sure, artist. Side. absolutely. So it, it comes back to this idea of who owns the machine, right? Now, 
historically, as I said, like machine vendors have been the ones that control the distribution process. But with blockchain, what you can do now is you can actually take a piece of content like a song and you can redefine the boundaries. And you can say, we actually don't need the vendor to provide some of these services. And as a result of that, you can create a self-contained machine. The best analogy of that from the physical world is the vending machine. Okay? The vending machine is a really powerful concept because it means I can distribute my goods on any property I want to, but I still administer the price per access of the good. And that's fundamentally the solution for music. The idea is that we need to take the entire model of the access policy, which is typically specified by the platform. So Spotify dictates, here's what the relationship is going to be between you and the consumer. Here's the actual price per stream you're going to get, right? And we need to say, you know what? We now have the technology to take that entire policy decision and make it a self-contained entity and make it a very small, compact, virtual machine. That's essentially what a smart contract in share is today. And by doing that, and this ties into the second piece, why is this powerful for creators? It means that creators can con completely control the price per stream independent of the platform used to stream the content. So in the past, you know, you could say, well, I could always control the price per stream because I could just make brandontory.com and put my song in there and charge whatever I want. That's not the solution. You have to have a model where any website, any app, any program on earth can access that content that's been distributed on blockchain and have the revenue flow to the creator and all collaborators independent of the interface that the end user is using. And so that's what's, what's um, unlocked here. And the beauty of it is that because of the EVM, we now have ownerless infrastructure to implement that value exchange between the creator and the consumer. We've never had this before. And this is a, a big key point that I talk to with a lot of engineers when they read the white paper. In the past, the terms of service, right? When you think about what are the terms of service between the person that makes the, the content and the person that consumes the content? Well, that code that implements that terms of service has to run somewhere, okay? It either runs on the stem player, which Kanye made, or it runs on your iPod, or it runs on Spotify's server. What all those things have in common is that the code is running somewhere that you don't control. Meaning that as the creator, you never actually can make the policy decision. But what the EVM allows is for you to run creator-specified code on infrastructure that is not owned by anybody. And that's the beauty. That's the thing that EVM unlocks for creators. All right. Let me see if I can try to understand that in as many terms. If we could, can we go back to the vending machine analogy? Because yeah, yeah, I think that's it. a really good analogy yeah. to help me and probably other people wrap their brains around. So I have an album that I want to put out. Yep. If I put it out now, I give it to Spotify, and they're going to give me a certain percentage per play that my song gets. I yep. could put it up on jaredcarpenter.com, yep. but who's going to go there? Exactly. When there's already these platforms that already have millions, if not billions, of monthly active users, so I put it up on Spotify, and they're going to take, what's the percentage that Spotify normally takes? Like, what, what's the thing you're fighting against there? Yeah, so Spotify doesn't work on a, on a percentage model. They actually give you a flat rate wholesale to all creators that's the same, which is roughly $0.003 per stream. So a fraction of a cent per stream. Okay, fraction, so I'm going to get a fraction of a strength, that's the fraction of a cent for every stream that I get on my song. Yeah. Now it's up on Spotify. Spotify, in this case, owns the vending machine. And then anytime somebody listens to the song, which is like gets their chocolate bar, they're going to get, they're going to pay me 0.003 so, cents okay. for this a, is a good, yeah, it's a really good analogy. So in the Web2 world with Spotify, you are fighting for a spot for your product to be in a vending machine, which is owned by Spotify. Okay. Now Spotify has a, a set price for all items that go in that vending machine. And you are competing with everybody else to get your thing into that vending machine at a high enough position that people can see it so you can get that 0.003 every time somebody accesses the machine. But the machine is owned by Spotify, okay? In Web3 and with Share, the difference is it's your vending machine. So you're no longer competing to get things into the vending machine. What you're competing for is to get the vending machine into a certain school or a certain mall or a certain whatever. But the price per access of the thing in the vending machine is controlled by you. And in this analogy of the vending machine, which I love, because it's easier for me to, to wrap my head around visually as I'm like trying to yeah. you know, put this in, I, then it's up to me. And, and as far as the, quote, orders of magnitude more, yeah. money or profit or whatever we want to talk about, the value that I'll get back for having created this art and people enjoy it, 
I can put vending machines wherever I want because these things replicate <laughs> at a marginal, you know, the marginal cost to replicate is zero. Exactly. Okay. That's the fundamental thing. The fundamental thing is we should not be competing for spots in somebody else's vending machines. We should be trying to put our own vending machines on as many properties as possible. With this said, I'm sure in many ways, Formless and you and your team kind of look at what Kanye is doing with the stem player and say, that makes a lot of sense. He has full control over that, does he not? So, or no? I'm a big Kanye fan. Kanye has been a big inspiration to me creatively. I think that they got it wrong with the stem player. Okay, what did they get wrong? This is good. <laughs> the, the idea that they need to own the machine is correct, right? And that comes from the shared white paper where, where we talk about the idea that whoever owns the machine owns the distribution model, right? But the problem is if you don't really look at what's available from a technological standpoint, to try to create another physical machine really just positions you as another vendor, okay? So the problem with that model is you actually can't use that hardware such that another digital interface can become an endpoint for the consumer. So for example, once I buy the stem player, that's great, right? And I have a better, there's a better direct-to-consumer relationship with Kanye West, right? But Spotify or YouTube or whatever decentralized app pops up in the future can't actually access that content from the stem player. Right. So that limits the number of malls you can put your vending machine in. Okay. That's problem number one. Problem number two is you now have a physical distribution cost, which limits the number of malls you can put the vending machine in. What you really want to do is build a virtual machine, the EVM, Ethereum virtual machine. You want to build a virtual machine, which essentially what you're saying is I don't have to build the hardware because the hardware already exists. It's the nodes on the blockchain. Consumer hardware is already out there. And so if we can just leverage consumer hardware as the virtual machine, now I don't have to actually do fulfillment of a stem player. I love it. So there's no warehousing of stem players. There's no distribution. There's no, I didn't get my stem player. There's exactly. no reviews online for the customer service. Keeping everything in the cloud and keeping everything digital is actually something that I love most about podcasting. And I don't really talk about this a lot, but in the past, I've, I've had other kind of entrepreneurial endeavors but a lot of them run into the wall of scaling. Mm -hmm. There is a diminishing returns at some point, and you're just like, well, for me to scale like that, I need to have 15 people to do this. And in order to have 15 people, then it doesn't work because mm -hmm. labor costs, and especially as, as they're increasing now. So the scalability of this then seems to be its best advantage for creators as far as if you, you, know, if you take, a, take one of your top artists in the world right now, let's just say Ken, Kendrick Lamar. He's actually coming out with an album fairly yep. soon, I think. And talk to me about, if you could, break down Kendrick in Web2, which I guess we'll call Spotify. Yep. Sorry to you know, take down Spotify here on this, even though if you might be listening to this on Spotify, <laughs> which is very meta. Kendrick on Web2, he drops his album. And then Kendrick, when he goes through Formless in the future, because I think this is actually his last album with Top Dog Entertainment. I think he's mm -hmm. going to do his own thing, which is going to be exciting. So last album on Top Dog Entertainment, Web2, what would it look like if you were to release it through the EVM with Formless? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I want to start by saying that I don't think there's anything implicitly wrong with Spotify as a consumer-facing listening experience. The problem is in the back end. It's the way that it's built. And so if you look at how even this podcast will be distributed, right, I'm sure you'll go through some distribution channel, right, and they will then issue a non-exclusive sub-license to Spotify on your behalf that allows them to stream the content, and then you receive some revenue that goes to the distribution company and ultimately will come back to you and your collaborators. The problem is that you had actually no say in negotiating that contract. And there was actually no scalable way for you to do that. There's no way that Spotify could allow millions of creators to each individually negotiate the terms of distribution between them and their consumers. And so to some extent, you know, that was the best option. But with blockchain, it's no longer the best option because you have a scalable way to do contract negotiation peer-to-peer, -peer. again with the EVM, right? So what this would look like, and this is the crazy part, in theory, it might look the exact same way, where you still listen to it on to, Spotify. To the consumer. To the consumer. To the consumer. To the consumer, okay. exactly. You still listen to it on Spotify. You still listen to it on YouTube. You still listen to it on Share. You listen to it on whatever platform you like, but the platform is not accessing it through a non-exclusive wholesale license agreement. They're accessing it through the blockchain and paying Kendrick whatever he's asked for. And so now when you distribute your, this episode, this episode is now a vending machine that you put out and you say, any consumer-facing streaming application can access this. 
However, it's going to be a dollar per listen, right? And that's specified in code on the blockchain. So that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for being patient as I try to formalize, yeah. formalize this. Because I read the white paper and I read white papers for cryptocurrencies, for NFT projects, for a lot of Web3 stuff, for DAOs, how they're going to kind of like work, for DeFi projects. And I think at the end, you're always left if there's an interesting project. You just want to talk to the person who wrote it or yeah. had an idea because they're going to break it down in a way you're like, okay, that's less jargony. Yeah. I get yeah. it now. Like the vending machine is a perfect analogy. So Kendrick puts it out on Web2 or Web3. The end consumer, me, I'm really not going to know. But for him as a creator, it's amazing. So Kendrick can probably go to Spotify and say, hey, I'm Kendrick Lamar. You guys exactly. need to play this for 50 cents or it's not on your platform. Exactly. Now, Kendrick can do that because he's Kendrick. Yep. And maybe Spotify's like, honestly, like whatever. Yep. We'd rather have it here. Because the other thing is, if Kendrick's asking for 50 cents per play, there's only going to be a certain amount of platforms that are going to be actually able to play it and pay him that money if that were to make sense. Absolutely. So now let's go to me. Because if, this, if, you know, if you're open to it, I would love to be the first podcast that uses this. Oh, well, let's go. To, yeah. to put it out. I mean, I think yeah. it's only right now that you've gone on the pod. 100%. So the podcast is growing and one day it will be a behemoth uh, when, yep. I don't know, I think we need more, a lot more other adopters into Web3 and then it will grow. But it's growing within Web3 and it's, it's growing well. But I don't have maybe the clout, like Kendrick Lamar, to go to Spotify and say, hey, I want 50 cents a play. Right. So say I go to them and I'm like, I want a cent a play, which is magnitudes more than my point zero zero three, which is you know, a fraction of a cent. Yep. Why is Spotify going to say, that's cool, we're down with that. Yep. You've done the terms. You can play it, other than maybe just being the first podcast so through Formless to be. Yeah, so here, here's, here's how I look at it. It's not a negotiation. The market decides. It's supply and demand, right? So once you introduce the idea of dynamic pricing to content distribution, Spotify may say, we're not going to have this content available on Spotify. That's fine, right? But now guess what? Whoever's willing to build the interface that will serve that content now just won Kendrick Lamar's business and won his fan base, right? So the idea is, it doesn't matter. I'm putting the content on blockchain. These are the terms. They're in the contract. What that means now is if, if I'm an opportunist as a Web3 developer, I'm going to build the Kendrick Lamar streaming app because Spotify didn't have it. And now I can actually take a cut off the top of that and build a business around the idea that I can now serve content that's distributed on blockchain. So the, the whole idea is that we need this model of supply and demand in the content industry. Because if you don't have it, everything is dictated by the application. And so in your, in your model, right, you may say, okay, I can't go and negotiate with Spotify and say, hey, I want to get a dollar stream. But that's okay, because I would argue that within the people that are really fans of the More Than Blockchain podcast, right, they don't really care about Spotify. They care about your content. And so if you say, hey, look, it's available here, and here are the terms to, to get it, right, you're going to find out what it's actually worth. That's okay. You may find out it's worth less than 0 0.003, but you may find out people are willing to pay 50 cents. That changes the entire content distribution industry. So this truly lets the market dictate. It lets the market dictate. I was listening to Gary Vee the other night, and he was just talking about, you know, create content, everyone. Gary Vee, at some point, like, you know, he's kind of, he laughs at himself, right? There yeah. are people now on the internet that just make fun of him. It's like, yeah, you got to be creating content when you're like sleeping, like people filming you, you know, like yep. document everything. And he was just talking about how because content is free, and as a consumer, you can go on YouTube and the stuff's free. Mm -hmm. No one's making you pay. You can now buy YouTube Red. There are other things you can do. Because it's free, there's just so much. Yep. The, supply, the supply can sometimes outweigh the demand. Yep. But on this, the demand will start to create the market for the supply, if that makes sense. Because right now, when this podcast is out, and it's on Spotify, this podcast, you could access this on the same level as you could access any other podcast out there. But in the future, you're saying the market will, let me, let me actually rephrase this, in the future, with Formless and Web3, the creators will benefit from having a competitive market. Yes. Not just being Kendrick as opposed to a rapper who's just starting on SoundCloud and has a thousand followers. Yeah. Okay. I mean, the other, the other thing to note here is that you may find out that the value of your content is still zero. Right. And so it's not that we're unconditionally saying that content should cost more or that content should be paid. It's that the market should determine the value. 
Right. And the creator should benefit a lot more from the market's determination of that value. Exactly. Because right now it's just Spotify. For example, once again, Spotify, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, they're all getting a lot more out of it potentially than the creator at the end of the day, even though the creator brought all the value. So think, think about T-shirts. Imagine if all T-shirts were a dollar. We wouldn't see T-shirt designers taking the risks that we see with, for example, someone like Virgil Abloh, right? The, the idea is that when you have dynamic pricing, when you're able to establish that value proposition within your particular market, it may be very small, right? But that's okay. You can grow now that you have financial um, sustainability with that market. Now you have $600 T-shirts. Why would somebody pay $600 for a T-shirt? T-shirts don't cost that much to make. It's because the creator knows the value of that within that particular market. And that's the, that's the same thing that I believe is going to happen with content, where now you have bands who people just actually love their music. It's, it's, not, that, it's not that the band is saying, hey, I want to take advantage of, of my audience. It's that they're saying, I'm creating music that people actually love, and so let's let the market determine what the value of that experience is. Right now, if I go on iTunes and I want to buy an album, the difference between your, ten, your, your album with 10 songs and Kendrick's, and I'm just using Kendrick because I think he's a really well-known artist beyond hip-hop. Yeah. They're both actually $10 because I'm going to pay about a dollar per well, song. The same price. You're saying in the future, though, so we've kind of talked about streaming, and I guess I want to get more into the acquisition. Or do you think music acquisition is now just kind of like a thing of the past? Acquisition Where, like, like downloads? Yeah, like downloads. Like I'm going to pay to have, you know, I'm looking at Brandon Torrey's album and I'm looking at Kendrick Lamar's album. Yeah. They're both going to actually cost me $10. Obviously, if they're in, if, if, if we're in Web3, Kendrick may get nine of those dollars. You may only get 90 cents to that $10. Yep. And that's just because the market has determined that this is the relationship that will happen for this particular creator. Exactly. Okay, so for the consumer side, nothing may change except for now I want to talk about acquisition though. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like, in the 90s, late 90s, I still have them because I don't really, because I think there's just like an intrinsic thing, uh, sentimental. I have the books, the albums of, C- of CDs yep. that I used to have. And that was me acquiring those. And so the creator got a cut for every one of those CDs. But now we're much more in a streaming world where people are just so used to the subscription-based model. Yeah, I'll pay $10 to Spotify and I get all my music. Mm-hmm. How does this play when it comes to acquisition of music or in the Web3 model? Are we just in a world where no one actually owns music? They just tap into it when they want it, if yeah. that makes sense. Because this goes to the idea of you know, having access over ownership, which I think is a huge part of our generation, yeah. where we're just so much more into being able to access something rather than being owners of. But at the same time, in Web3, you know, we live in the sharing economy of like, I don't need a car. I can just use Uber, right? Yeah. And we have the subscriptions, and I don't need music. I don't need to have these CDs or even have it on my computer taking out my gigabytes. I can just use Spotify. However, in Web3, the backbone of it is all about ownership. Mm-hmm. How do those two play? Is this just ownership being on the creator side? Or you know, if I want to buy your album and have ownership, yeah. maybe that gets into the conversation about NFTs within this ecosystem. Okay, so a lot there. This is a fantastic question. I think that the backbone of Web3, I think ownership is a part of it. But I also believe that fundamentally the backbone of Web3 is about choice. And so the idea is that Everything you just asked should be each individual creator's decision. No technology should dictate for all creators what that's going to look like. The idea is we need to build technology that understands that each creator will have a different business model. And so when I go to actually create a contract around my content, I can now say this will come with ownership for you or this will not. This access grant will give you the ability to experience this content for 90 days for $6. Whatever it is, it's got to be dynamic and it's got to be on a per-creator basis. And then they can negotiate that value exchange with their consumer. That's the idea. It's got to be choice. That is a beautiful thing. If Jeff, if you're listening, I run a soccer podcast with Jeff. It's called Boys and Bolos, where we talk about the English Premier League. And I feel, as, the, as the Jeff does and many other content creators who I talk to, especially podcasters, we don't want, like, I, I want to monetize this podcast, but I don't want to have, like, me in the middle of our great conversation right now being like, you know, go buy gain detergent. You should use it. It's saving <laughs> lives. That seems so fake. And it seems like I'm putting on the two hats that you're talking Absolutely. about. And Web3, I love that you're saying it's about choice because for me, Web3, people ask, like, what's one word? I'm just like, authenticity. Yeah. Because Web2 for me is balancing those different hats and like, oh, you know, I'm in the cypher at night and then I'm in C++ or I'm deep yeah. in Python during the day. 
So I, I think about Web3 as authenticity and choice and being authentic for me, I don't want to have those ads in my podcast. So Jeff and I have gone through <laughs> this kind of thing of how we're going to do it. And it's like, we're going to sell an NFT. And then only if you have the NFT, can you listen to our episodes? And there's a podcast to earn thing because we're going to take all the money we get through the NFTs, put it into a DAO. And then every time you listen, you get paid out of that DAO. Now, ideally, you're going to get paid in something like Ethereum, mm -hmm. where 0 0.001 Ethereum today is not going to be what 0 0.001 Ethereum is worth in the future as it appreciates. So maybe using a stable coin there to kind of having almost an investing thing and paying off interest as you go. We're not really sure. Where, where, it's, it's a similar concept to Formless, but the idea is that a creator can create content and get paid for it so they don't have to worry about the other side, which is why you were going between Silicon Valley and LA, because exactly. you had to pay to be an artist. In the future, maybe that's not the case. And have you already talked to some creators who love this idea, wrap their mind around it, and are like, whenever that's ready, I am, I, my al I'm giving you an album. Or how yeah. is the onboarding process going to look? To your point, like the, the things you just mentioned about the idea with the DAO and, the, and investing back in the podcast and stuff, all that to me sounds like choice, right? It sounds like, you know, content distribution is a business and you have to be able to make choices to grow that business, right? And we need, we need technology that enables that. And that's really what Formless and Share is all about. Um, in terms of creators, so here, here's kind of like the way I look at art. For one, I don't judge art anymore. When I first started, I used to say, oh, I don't, I, you know, that guy's not good, that guy's good. That guy. Now I realize like, you know, it's very subjective. So I'm very careful about saying like somebody's stuff is really good versus not good. It's just like what I like and what I don't like. There comes a point as an artist where you've solved the problem of creating stuff that people like. It's not easy to get there. It could take like 10 years for you to figure that out. But there does come a point where you figured it out. And I've met a ton of people in LA who literally, if you go into the studio at 3 a.m. at night, they're playing songs that no one will ever hear because they wrote them and they'll never get placed on an album or whatever, but they're better than any song I've ever heard in my life. Right? That's on the radio that, or that's, that's on the radio anywhere. at the Grammys. At the Grammys, anyway. Whatever. And anybody that's lived in LA can tell you this. Every night, there are thousands of creators in that city who are playing songs that they wrote that are phenomenal, that will never make it because of the business dynamics of the industry. I say that to say there are creators who literally are dying to figure out the answer to the business model here. And there's so much beautiful music that isn't being heard just strictly because there's no way to actually make it economically viable. And so when I talk to them about Share, like, they're super excited. The main concern that everybody has, which is, which is a valid concern, is how long is it going to take for everybody else to understand Web3 so that this actually can start to become a mainstream thing? You've got me exactly to my thing because <laughs> yeah. I'm like, Web3 for me, and we've been in and around blockchain around the same time. You said you got into blockchain, I believe, in 2017 yeah, when 17. you started looking at That's when I bought into crypto, and that's where I came across this thing called blockchain and then went down the rabbit hole that I still live in today. Yeah. But it's like, you, I've talked to people, you've talked to people about Web3, about NFTs, about all this stuff. But it's hard for people to A, wrap their minds around. And if you don't understand something, you're not going to invest into it. And I don't mean money-wise. I just mm -hmm. mean your time, time in learning something new yep. and getting outside your comfort zone. So, right, you could create the Atlantis for content creators. How do you get them to join? You already have a podcaster. So I, I don't know if that makes your Sunday or whatever. <laughs> oh, it does make my Sunday. I'm excited. how do you get other people here yeah. that are up to 3 a.m. in L.A., that are in studios, and that have a very, very good understanding, I would say, of their risk reward. Mm -hmm. Because maybe jumping on with Formless would be a massive risk. Now, the reward will be just as big as the risk, but maybe they're like, you know, I just want to keep plugging away and I want to get, you know, I know an a version and they've been telling me that they're going to come through. They, yeah. you know, they're always busy, but they're going to come through. What's that look like, that conversation about, hey, this is the risk and this is the reward of trying something completely new? So to some extent, it's a math problem. So you look at economically how you're doing with the traditional distribution model, and then you look at the projections if you were to do it another way. And there happens to be a segment of people where it's a no-brainer and another segment of people where it's, it is a little bit riskier. The thing is, once that no-brainer group starts to get it, those stories start to propagate, and the other group is like, well, wait a minute, there's something there, because we also aren't maximizing what we're doing. Fundamentally, though, it's all, and this is, what, this is the hill that I'll have to die on, it's all predicated on the power of music. If you can make a song that's good enough, if you can make a song that's beautiful enough, that resonates enough with people, they don't care if it's on Spotify, right? 
And that's the fundamental belief that I have. And that's, that's what I've seen in my experience in music is that music and other forms of art and, and content that we create have the power to make people make choices because they want to experience that. To me, that's really the fundamental thesis. I'm thinking about the years I spent in New York and I go to New York every once in a while because it's the Rome of our time. Mm -hmm. And if you've ever been in New York, you've been in the subway and you've probably heard someone who, you know, better than top five people on America's Got Talent that year for sure. Yeah. There was a woman that was on the 13th, the, I think the L, the 13th for years when I was at grad school. And she was so good. She was mesmerizing. And then you're like, how does she not have a bigger platform? Yeah. And then you get into the, well, there's this and that. And then there's the business and the politics. And all these people got to get paid in the business yeah. of music. You've been around it. And there's a lot of people that, you know, they take their little bits for every song, every replay that happens to Spotify. A lot of people get, get their bread from that. Yep. This is going to be a huge disruptor, potentially. I believe so, yeah. What does that look like for you when you think about it? Because you're, you know, you're the new Sean Parker. And I don't know, I mean that in the greatest of ways as a rebel a who's, using code, yeah, a who's using code to say exactly what you said. Let's, let's let the music actually flourish. Yeah. When, when you think down five years down the line, what's one thing that could really trip you up in this? Aside from the mm -hmm. adoption, right? Let's get past the adoption because there's some things that we can't control. Yeah. So what's something that you can control when you look at Formless that you're like, you know, because you can't, you can't control, like I'm saying, the adoption. But what's something you can control that you still feel like is going to be a challenge, whether it's in the technical side or in the shift of the culture or something? Yeah, great question. I think this comes down to just the fundamental idea of being a founder and like what can trip you up when you have a vision. A friend of mine told me this. I thought it was a fantastic quote. I, had, I, I grew up with this kid named Earl who became my best friend. We lived in a shelter together. I used to whoop him in chess every night, just smack him, just four move checkmates all the time. And then we became men and he started to beat me repeatedly. And it was driving me crazy. And I'm trying to build a business. I'm trying to be a successful artist. And I'm thinking like, whatever I'm doing wrong in chess might also be what I'm doing wrong in life. So I asked Earl, I said, Earl, how you beat me in chess? Man, I used to kill you when we was kids. Like, what's going on? He laughs. He goes, uh, he goes, sometimes you'll have a strategy. And then I'll make a move and you'll change your whole strategy based on a move I made. And he said, never change your strategy based on a move made by the enemy. And to me, that's the fundamental idea here with success as a founder. It's that as you're making progress toward the vision, you uh, repeatedly get presented with what look like opportunities that actually just take you off course. And so you have to have the fortitude and the resource and the self-belief to follow through with the vision, even though certain things pop up that seem like opportunities, but really are just designed to take you off of your initial strategy. And to me, that's the one thing that I think we can control that I've been very, very mindful of. You know, as we talk to investors and we talk to different you know, people, everybody's got all these ideas and things. And as a founder, a lot of times you're trying to do whatever's going to sustain the business. And so you have to have a system where you can follow through on the vision, even if that means there's a chance you'll fail. And you have to have that conviction. And to me, that's, that's like my thing. That's big advice for anybody out there creating, yeah. myself included. I have a roadmap. I have a, I'm treating the podcast like an NFT. So I have a roadmap and then I look at it. I'm like, is that actual feasible? Because sometimes NFT roadmaps, they're ridiculous. They're like, oh, if you buy it, if you <laughs> buy our go NFT, to Mars. <laughs> yeah, you buy our NFT, you're going to get to go to Mars. Every Wednesday, you're going to get free Grubhub. Like every third Thursday, we'll forever. do your taxes forever. And I'm like, this is not, that's not sustainable. So <laughs> I feel that that's extremely good advice for anyone building anything. Because yeah. there are all these things that will come to you. And especially if an investor is like, hey, maybe I'll give you some money, but maybe you should do this. And you're yeah. like, nah, we're not. This is what we're doing. This is what we're doing. I think. Being from New England, I, I don't really watch the NFL or the Patriots, but one of the things that I've learned a lot from that organization, because they always talk about how human beings, we make a lot of errors, the systems don't. Exactly. And like Tom Brady, he was just in a system that worked. And Belichick had the system and it ran and it exactly. ran. And, and it you, ran. Don't just you, you don't change the system just because you don't change the system no matter what, <laughs> exactly. no matter what. And all and as this is a heavy athletic comment, but I, I coached soccer for years at the college level. And one of the biggest uh, brands in soccer is FC Barcelona. Because no matter, they could be losing by three goals, they're still going to play the same way as if they were at 0-0. Zero, zero. If they're up by three, they're still playing the same way. And consistently, if you do that long enough, you get FC Barcelona's. Yeah. You get the New England Patriots. 
you get kind of what the Celtics have been doing for a long time, which is they're just sticking at the way they play ball. It will eventually hit. Yeah. But okay, so for formless, what what is that? What is that strategy? What is that? Yeah. You know, because you're the coach. Yeah. What's the strategy that we're all going to do, which supersedes even your own ego? It's delivering on the white paper. It's delivering on the vision that was specified in the white paper. Like if 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 that's not delivered, then we've strayed. Right. And no matter what opportunity pops up or what little variation someone suggests, like mission number one is to deliver on what was specified in that foundational piece. So what's success? What does that look like? Success to me, again, it looks like choice. It looks like the ability for creators to uh, distribute content in ways that they want to and to create experiences and value propositions between them and their consumers on a protocol like Share, you know, de- developed by Formless which gives them that choice and then creates economic sustainability, which flows back into the art. You know, the idea of the starving artist is like a cool romantic thing, but if you want good art, just like if you want good anything, you have to invest. You have to have some type of water for that plant. And so you can't really separate the business from the art. If people listening to this want to learn more about Formless and want to reach out to you, where's the best place? I found you on Twitter and LinkedIn. Yeah. You want to shout those out? Yeah, um, Brandon Tory everywhere, B-R-A-N-D-O-N-T-O-R-Y. Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and then our website is formless.xyz, F-O-R-M-L-E-S-S dot X-Y-Z. Brandon, thanks so much, man. I'm looking forward to, you know, hopefully being the first podcast as part of this new ecosystem. Me too. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode and be sure to find and follow Brandon on social media and check out Formless at formless.xyz. Please follow us on social media at More Than Blockchain and subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to it. And as a footnote to this episode, the 3-6 Mafia song I referenced earlier is titled Stay Fly, Not Stay High. Finally, if you enjoyed this episode and know a creator who would benefit from learning about Formless, please DM, text, or email them the episode link. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you next time.